0: 29 AD, there was one about to change the world. Fully man, fully God, Jesus. Next to him was a friend who witnessed everything. He saw early miracles, he sat at his right hand, his own eyes saw Jesus transfigured, the very heart of Christ was poured out to him and he was there at the cross on the day history was altered. These are the words and the story of John. So let me open. I want to open with a story to kind of set the stage on where I think John is headed uh, with this concept of believing instead of knowing. And so easy story follow with me. Let me start by sharing you this. It was a guy named Ken Davis that wrote about his college experience where he did this. He says this. I'm just going to read it to you. In college, I was asked to prepare a lesson to teach my speech class. We were to be graded on our creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of my talk was The Law of the Pendulum. I spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical uh, principles that govern a swinging pendulum. All the engineers were like, yeah, this is great. The law of the pendulum is a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until it finally comes to rest. The point of rest is called the State of Equilibrium, where all the forces are acting when are are equal. I attached a three-foot string to a child's toy and plugged it into the top of a blackboard with a thumbtack. I pulled the top of the toy to one side and made a mark on the blackboard and then I let it go. And Each time it swung back, I made a mark until it finally came to rest after about a minute. When I finished the demonstration, the markings on the blackboard proved my thesis. Then I asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. Of course, all my classmates raised their hand, they clapped, and so did the teacher. He started to walk to the front of the room thinking the demonstration was over. In reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling beams in the middle of the room was a large, crude, but functional pendulum. 250 pounds of metal weights tied to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. I invited the instructor to climb up on a table and sit in a chair with his back and his head against a cement wall. Then I brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose, holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face. I once again explained the law of the pendulum (laughs) that he had only moments before applauded. If the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this massive metal, it will swing across the room, and it will return short of the release point. Your nose and face are in absolutely no danger. After that final restatement, I looked him straight in the eye and asked, Sir, do you believe the law is true? There was a long pause. Some beads of sweat I could see formed on his upper lip. And he quietly and very weakly said, Yes. And then I released the pendulum. It made a swooshing sound as it arced across the room, and the room was silent. This is a lot of weight moving. At the far end of the swing, it paused, and then it started coming back, and it started accelerating. I never saw a man move so fast in my life. He dove from the table, deathly jumping around and dodging the swinging pendulum. As this pendulum came to a stop, I asked the class, does the professor believe the law of the pendulum and the students unanimously shouted no and i looked at the professor and he said i guess i don't believe john wrote his gospel so you will move from knowing jesus to believing in him and following him are you a man that truly believes in jesus and follows him or are you a guy that knows him and simply follows him online. Let me pray for us as we start our lesson of John. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. Lord, we desperately want to believe in you and not just be guys that know about you. Father, move us now. We're going to give you 24 weeks of our heart, our minds, and our life, Lord, and we ask that you meet us there and transform us, Jesus. Lord, I beg. That anywhere along this way, that the teachers, myself included, that we teach whatever words we use, however way we communicate, it does not get in your way. Don't let us block your Holy Spirit from communicating whatever it needs to communicate. Lord, help these men hear you and Jesus most of all. Help them have a passion to follow you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start, we're going to move through this fairly quickly so we get done in a, in a good amount of time, but I want to talk about the gospel of John and who wrote it. Um, and so you think, well, that's kind of the most stupid thing in the world we're going to talk about, right? John did, right? So somebody said, boy, you better know your Johns to do this study, right? So the author did not identify himself in the gospel, except to some degree in the very last chapter, in chapter 21, where he says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Scholars believe that much like Paul, who was going blind, who used a scribe to write most of his letters because he had bad eyesight, John was aging. He was getting into those really latter years of his life, and he was not at deft at, at, at writing down what he needed. So the elders of the church that he belonged to in Ephesus Summon forth a scribe to come forth and help John write down these sayings. And so when you read the statement that says, we know that this testimony is true, that's the scribe saying, we know that this testimony is true. The elder saying, we know this is true. They're responding to John. And so this is is a very strong indication that John, in fact, did write it, and he used a scribe to help him write this statement down modern scholars have debated this uh, authorship but they stand in stark contrast to the early church fathers who never debated this they strongly believed it was john the apostle that wrote john's gospel a couple of people that you might know most of us don't but there's guys that you'll read about one named iranius assigned authorship to the apostle john because he had read from polycarp who was a disciple of john's about a hundred years A.D., 20 years after this was written, that this was truly a gospel written by John. So Polycarp and and, uh, Ignatius of Antioch were both disciples of John, and they frequently quoted this gospel as John's gospel. These are folks that were literally, we have documentation from those men that were there within 20 years of John writing it saying that's what it was. You just can't find ancient uh, documents with that level of accuracy and attestation. Other uh, leaders at that time, Herculean, Theophilus, Clement, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen and St. Augustine, all in that first to third century were strong Christian theologians that attested that this gospel was the gospel of John. And they didn't debate it and argue over it. This modern debate is a modern debate. It is very new. It's very young. But the ancient fathers did not have this debate. I'm going to stand as I teach John this year on that premise, that this gospel was a gospel written by John, John the disciple who loved Jesus, and that's who we'll go with. His anonymity in there, I believe, and I think this is what most uh, scholars would say is true, provides focus on Jesus instead of himself. And when you think about it, if you're sitting with a scribe and you're describing what Jesus said and then you start weaving yourself into the story, that's kind of awkward, isn't it? that's kind of a weird thing to happen so it makes sense as he's describing these things that the scribe's not writing it down as if he's john and so this really makes sense to me that what you're seeing was a common technique then using a scribe and an author describing it but not describing himself so that the focal point is on the person they're talking about instead of themselves as the author we can see also that john was a jewish palestinian So this is really important, John is Jewish and he's Palestinian, he's from that area. He's got an intimate understanding of the Jewish customs and the tribes of that time that were going on. So this is a key part of what goes on in John. He also shows us a very precise knowledge of the geography of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. He was very specific. So, as you start to read John, look for how specific he is about describing places. Very clear. One example is the pool of Shalom where he heals the blind man. For years, I mean, literally years, they said this gospel of John was not geographically accurate and John was probably not on base. And now in 2004 archaeologists discover the pool of Shalom and all of a sudden all of these people that said it wasn't accurate say it's incredibly accurate because now all the archaeologists are catching up to with what John had said it's just they were lagging in their science when John what was saying was very accurate the whole time John's considered one of the most accurate Gospels of the four in terms of geography and of the culture at the time Luke 5, 6-11 describes John as one of the first apostles chosen by Jesus, an important fact because he spent a lot of time with him then. John's dad was Zebedee. He and his brother James ran a fishing business with their father, and they were partners with Peter and Andrew and their family. Interesting fact, when you look at the end of John and you see that they, the disciples go back to fishing after three years of being with Jesus, what would that tell you about the business? That tells you the business was probably fairly large because it was running without the sons, right? That's often normal. You'll see a business that's that large. It can run without key people in it, and it did, and that business kept running. So there's a a strong belief that, that that fishing business was thriving, and it was actually a main supply to the temple of fish. John and James were nicknamed by Jesus the sons of thunder, as our pastor indicated earlier, and that, some believe, was Jesus pointing out their hot tempers. Yeah, John had a temper. I like John. Yeah, I'm feeling like John already right here. John describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved on five different occasions. And people take that in interesting ways, but you're going to see that a deeply humble John was truly loved by Jesus, and he understood that that love was an unmerited love. And that's what he was describing. It was not an arrogant claim of a unique relationship. He was saying, I'm deeply loved. And I know what that means. I don't deserve it. Don't you wonder why we don't say that about ourselves more often? I mean, think about it. Tomorrow when you wake up, you should look in the mirror and say, Bill, you're the one that's deeply loved by him. That's what John was saying. He wasn't bragging. Mark 5.37 identifies three men who were the inner circle of Jesus. John, James, and Peter jesus chose them to be at every essential moment watch for this to occur it happens in acts after jesus leaves in john 13 23 we see that john sat at the right hand of jesus at the last supper a very highly esteemed place to sit at the right hand of the of your rabbi john 19 25 reveals that john was the only disciple that stood by jesus during the crucifixion what does that tell you about john all the rest were scared and they left he stayed He stood by Jesus at the crucifixion. That took an immense amount of courage. Jesus gave John the responsibility for caring for his mother as he's dying on the cross. Jesus could have given that to his brother James, but James was not a believer at this point. John was the believer, and so Jesus honors John by saying, this is your spiritual mother, this is your spiritual son that's the relationship this is a powerful moment in this in this thing and it points to this renaming of a family a spiritual family this is something we all experience john was the first to the tomb after jesus was re- resurrected i think we all giggled at this and he and he writes in his gospel that he outran peter so isn't this not hilarious john's recorded as having a temper and he's competitive now i see why jesus picked him i like this guy right got a temper and he's competitive i could have been in that group this is good john was the first person uh the first apostle to recognize jesus and believe in him after the resurrection john had a very close relationship with peter that was highlighted in the book of acts where they let when they led the new church together after jesus was resurrected and lastly the early church fathers believed that john was the single only apostle that was not martyred that he died of a natural death while working as the bishop of ephesus in the church in ephesus which is was in is in modern day turkey asia minor at the, uh, later on so this was a nice place to be for for john that gospel most people believe was written somewhere between 80 and 100 a.d about 20 to maybe 40 years after the other three gospels were written uh, two pieces of information to help people surmise that. One is Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in Rome uh, by Rome in 70 AD. So the Romans came in in '78, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. This is not mentioned in the Gospel of John anywhere and so they believed, as you would expect, many years had gone by, and it just wasn't news anymore, and it wasn't relevant to John. You can imagine John's living in a church. It's been 20 years since this thing's been destroyed. News doesn't travel the way it travels now. They didn't have media the way we have, so it just wasn't part of his life, and it had no bearing on the truths that he was trying to share on the Gospel of John. That really validates an older dating. And another part you see is if you, when you compare the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptics, similar, the same vein, those gospels with the gospel of John, and you start matching timing of events, and they don't match. And you're like, oh, what's wrong here? If, if you had written something 20 to 40 years after somebody had written something else and your point was not to get the chronology right, was to teach somebody what the spiritual nature of Jesus was, would you really care when things happened? Did he do the fish then or did he do the wedding then? I don't care, it doesn't matter. He did these miracles, that happen in some order, it's not relevant. Right? So he doesn't pay attention to that. That too, again, helps you see this was probably written later. And so this 80 to 100 AD is probably the range in when this document was written somewhere about 40 to 50 years after Jesus had died. So very accurate in terms of proximity to Jesus' uh, death. And we've got actual pieces of papyrus that were transcribed that were dated back almost, Almost within a hundred years of that time so they've got papyrus that's almost dead on to that time frame that shows these writings are in fact exactly the way they're written as this documentation is remarkably accurate you can trust in the gospel of John what was his purpose I got a handful of things and I'll be done first in verse 20 through 31 you got to see it it's clear John says this but these are written that all may believe that all may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word life appears 36 times in his gospel. John wants his readers to experience a new life in this world and in the next. Not just in eternal life, but life now. John experienced incredibly deep meaning and purpose in his lifetime while he was an apostle of Jesus. His life was never the same. He said, Jesus said, come follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. And that's exactly what happened. And the value he found and the meaning in his life was overwhelmingly good. And he wants us to know, you can have that too. You can have that same depth of purpose in your life. He wants us to have that experience. He said Jesus came to give us life to the fullest, and he said living water would overflow from us. That's what Jesus told us. What part of your life needs to come alive like that? Incorporating Bible study with other men into your life over the course of this year will help bring life to those places where you need that kind of life. John was instructing the new churches on the truth he lived with Jesus. He watched people change the story right in his presence. Can you imagine that? John's sitting there, and some dude walks in and goes, Hey, I heard Jesus say this. He's like, He didn't say that. That's not what he said. I was there. What are you talking? I was there. That's what goes on. You guys know this. This happens all the time. People and time destroy the truth about Anything. You know this is true. We watch it with our own eyes now, don't we? You turn the TV on and something just happened and there's 10 stories and none of them match. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. That's exactly what John was experiencing. So he's like, I must write this down so that you'll remember the truth of what happened. You'll know the truth is what happened. And this is why we study this, you guys, so we know. So somebody else doesn't tell us. We hear it firsthand from Jesus, right? And then Jesus said, I will send my Holy Spirit to remind you of this truth. Guys, when we read these words, and we're born again, the Holy Spirit is ignited inside of us, and it tells you that's true. That's it. Follow that. Believe that. You can feel it. You're reading it, and the Holy Spirit's talking to you. It's coming alive because the two together is what just boils up inside of you. It brings life to you. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God bring life to you, and that's what Jesus promised. How have you altered or forgotten what you've learned from Jesus? How have you forgotten or altered what you've learned You've got to stay in God's Word. Do your lesson each week and, dis- and discuss it with the men. The harder you work and the more you put effort into the discussion group, the better it will be to f- see your blind spots and where your thinking's erroneous. And why is that important? Because when you have erroneous thinking and blind spots, fear develops in you. And fear causes men to act stupid. We do dumb things, and we do things completely out of line with Jesus, and it comes from erroneous thinking, wrong theology. We forget what Jesus says, or we get it warped in our mind because of bad media. This is what J- John's talking about here. John was encouraging the Jews to follow Jesus as Messiah, knowing they were going to be excommunicated from their synagogues. It's what happened. When they followed Jesus, they got quickly quickly kicked out of their synagogues the synagogue was the center of life in a jewish community when you got kicked out you couldn't trade you couldn't do anything you lost your friends it was like death but john was proof that you could survive that in the jewish culture he himself was proof he knew i you can handle this you can get through this and jesus said to each disciple come follow me and they had to leave their existing communities guys what part of your culture that you're in right now do you need to step away from leaving friend groups in certain media and replacing them with other believers is what you're called to do so that you can get away from the things that are going to pull you away from Jesus John was encouraging unity among believers Jesus said the world will know you are mine by your unity by your unity we always heard in kindergarten it's by your love by your love that's not what he said read John 17 it says the unity between you it's the unity it's how you're unified how you act as one guys how many of you have been hurt at church church hurts we hurt each other we're sinful people and that's what happens and oftentimes when we hurt each other in the church we leave the church John's gonna push on you in this text he's gonna force you to deal with the idea of reconciliation Jesus requires us to reconcile with believers because unity is what's critical That's what Jesus calls us to be. What believer are you in conflict with right now that you need to reconcile with? Jesus is going to challenge your desire to avoid conflict with other believers. He's going to push on you. John presents Jesus in ways the other Gospels do not. He does it through seven I am stories. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus wants us to know him intimately. So John shows us all these facets of who he is. Which Jesus do you need that that you just don't know right now? You know, all of these facets of your life need Jesus, but you don't know how to apply it because you don't see the real Jesus. John shows you him in all these different ways so you could say, oh, at work, I need that Jesus. In my life over here, I need that Jesus. In this space, I need that Jesus. And John's like, he's here. Look at me, he's there. Here, he's that. He shows you a picture of Jesus you just don't get in the other Gospels. John helps us know the real Jesus so we can confidently invite him into every area of our life. That's what you're going to look for when you see these vignettes. John lastly demonstrates through relational dialogue, relational dialogue, that Jesus changed lives through that kind of thought, talking, not just sermons, not just miracles, and not telling stories in public settings. He worked directly with people in these very emotional dialogues. John shows us those. John had read the other three Gospels and realized they lacked the emotional language and insights that showed the heart of Jesus that he knew and that he experienced. And he wants you to connect to him emotionally, not just with your head, but your whole body and being your heart. He wants you to have an intense emotional experience with Jesus. How would you rate your emotional dependency on Jesus right now? Your dependency. I'm emotionally dependent on who? And that's what John's going to push on. Is that Jesus? Are you emotionally dependent on him? John will challenge you to deeply understand your emotional needs and how you're getting those needs met. Let me conclude with this thought. John Ortberg wrote a book called Overcoming Your Shadow Mission. A shadow mission is the driving force behind what you do each day That is something other than your true purpose as defined by Jesus. Our shadow mission is often driven by selfishness and ambition and it frequently causes us to quietly set aside our most cherished values. This is where the title and tag hypocrite comes to Christians. The non-Christians see it, the Christians don't because you know how to hide it. The apostle John wrote his gospel to speak to the Judean sect of Jews. Who controlled all the wealth power and culture in israel there were a number of different tribes of jews this book is about that it's deeply about that and it's often not seen so the fifth person i had on that bibliography is a as a phd rabbi in biblical theology and he presents you should all try to read this book it's powerful because he shows us how this tribal issue was manifesting itself in this entire story, it's the underlying story of the Gospel of John. There's this battle between the Judean Jews and the other Jews. And you're just not privy to it most of the time. We're gonna talk about it a lot. He's pointing to that. The Apostle John is helping us see that that group, that Judean Christian group, controlled all the wealth, the power, and the culture in Israel. They worked closely with Rome to protect their status and Jesus was born a Judean Jew. That was his tribe, and they did not accept him because he was a serious threat to their lifestyle. Their mission appeared deeply spiritual in search of the one true Messiah, but their shadow mission was to protect their comfortable way of life at all costs. John's gospel opens our eyes to the possibility that we can And often do have another mission we are running that is subverting our ability to follow Jesus. Being willing to have other people, like men in this room, help you sort through that can be incredibly liberating, you guys. Mine has always been avoiding criticism. And the way I do that, it manifests itself by I work my butt off to get results. I work really hard to get results because people can't criticize results. So my shadow mission oftentimes is avoiding criticism. And I'm working that way more than I'm working on my love for Christ or listening to Him. And I could tell you guys, when I had a group of men come around me and help me start to see that as what I was actually living in, it liberated me in ways I never anticipated so I could start to truly feel the love of Christ and literally follow Him instead of this need to avoid criticism. What's your shadow mission? Which one wakes you up every day? What do you do each day that controls your emotional energy, your time, and your money? My prayer is that you will work hard this year, explore your purpose, and you will make a dramatic shift to truly believe in Jesus so that you will have a full life, both now and eternally, and move from knowing to believing. Let's close. Heavenly Father, thank you, Jesus, for this time with these men. God, we want to move. We want to be different men. We want to hear your spirit. We want to follow you, Jesus. You said come follow, and we're the guys. We're in, Lord. Help us follow. I know I'm scared. I know these guys are scared. But help us go, Lord. Help us go. Now's our time, Father. Lord, I pray for these brothers that we will be united and we will work together to come follow you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.